Hi, and welcome to the In Detail podcast, where we are behind the scenes of creative business with Mick Maloney, Kate Fitzgerald, and Warren Mahaley. I'm Kate Fitzgerald. I'm the director of Whispering Smith, a small practice of uh, five people in Perth in Western Australia. I, uh, so I run um, Haley Slocum with my wife, Erica, and we are in Brunswick East in Melbourne, um, currently under stage four lockdown, and we have a studio of seven people. And I'm Mick from uh, Maloney Architects. We're in uh, Victoria as well. We're only in stage three lockdown uh, in uh, Ballarat here, uh, which is about an hour west of Melbourne. So um, we're heading up the regional uh, brigade for this podcast. Our practices are about uh, five or six people, depending on what that is. And uh, we work mainly on residential projects with uh, a little bit of commercial training as well. So, Warren, why are you doing this show? Well, I've been chatting with both of you guys for years about our businesses together. We have these, like, great, cathartic, um, uh, very deep conversations about... Um, you know, the ins and outs of running our own businesses. And uh, I guess the first thought we've each had is why don't we record it all? Um, what great tape that would make. Um, and, but, you know, I guess more seriously, it's a, you know, it's an opportunity for us to reflect on our own businesses together and the things we learn and then share that with um, other people who are going through the same things we are. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've made that point too, Kate, that um, this would have been an incredible resource when you were starting out. And I feel the same, you know, if this is what we're kind of making here is the, the, the tools or that information, those little gems that we've picked up along the years, um, along the way over the years that would have been really useful for us when we were starting out. Yeah, and I think it's this idea that um, we're all just learning as we go along. And maybe if we share some of the things that we have learned that are usually probably because we've made a mistake or uh, because we've got a system or a process that could be a bit better. And I think when we share those things with each other, maybe we can stop someone from making that same mistake a little bit faster than we did. And so maybe we can move the profession on a little bit, um, you know, from what we experienced. And, and we see that a lot in the, um, you know, like the, the forums, various AIA forums or ACA forums that you might be involved in is that there's a really collegiate sort of um, attitude amongst a lot of architects to, to share what we know and to share our systems and our experiences. Um, and I think this just contributes to that kind of overall atmosphere. Yeah, I think there's a spirit of um, getting better together. And I, I do think architects are actually pretty good at doing that already. Um, I think we're excellent at talking about design. Um, and maybe not so good at talking about business. Partly probably because there's a history of being really cagey about that, that technically speaking, we're all in competition with each other because we're all providing fundamentally the same services um, to a finite pool of people. Um, but rather than trying to, you know, cut up our own little slices of the pie and defend that to, the, to our teeth, let's work together to get better and maybe, you know, grow the size of the pie. Um, so that we, we all are, are all better off. Um, and if we can do that from a business perspective, that like being good at business is what liberates us to be good at design. Yep. Yeah. 100%. It's a great um, saying, like, you know, the rising tide that raises all boats. And I think that if we are all on the same page and we all sort of uh, learn from each other, but we're, we're constantly improving our businesses, that's going to have this sort of benchmarking effect 
across the industry where um, you know we we do look after ourselves and we don't get to the point where we're you know massively undercutting each other or, or you know somebody's falling into a hole um, that could have easily been avoided. Yeah, for sure. I think the other part of it is too um, that all practices start out as small practices, like you know. Bait Smart, Woods Baggett, Hassle, they didn't start off, you know, automatically with 8,000 staff. I mean, you every everything grows from something small. And so if we can create a better environment for our practices to start up, you know, those heroes of the future, we're going to get there a little bit faster, which is going to be great. Yeah. So why don't we um, get into it? Sounds good. Today's episode of In Detail was made possible with the help of our friends at Streamtime who have developed team management software designed by and for the creative and design industries. We're fans of their dedication to the death of timesheets and their epically designed user-friendly interface. Our thanks go to the Streamtime team for supporting us while we lift the cone of silence on what running a creative business is really like. And today we are talking about... Fees, the big one. Money, cash. <laughs> Well, I think it was uh, a natural choice. I mean, we, we had a lot of things we could have talked about on uh, on the show, but um, we went straight for the for the meat of the uh, of the architectural world, which is thing that often um, under discussed and uh, a lot of interest in it. Yeah, and it's also at the heart, I guess, of um, everything that we do. Right? You know, we're all here to be um, creative and um, leave um, really positive mark on the urban environments in which we operate. But we can't do that unless we can make ends meet. Yeah, we're the other part of fees. Well, sorry, Mick. The other part of fees is um, you know that we. I've got constantly talking about how we underpay our graduates, uh, how there's issues in the profession. Um, we have, you know, some appalling practices in the architectural industry. And one of those things stems from the fact that, you know, over the last 15 to 20 years, our fees have been cut back. And how can you run a good, how can you run a good and fair business if you're not making any profit? Okay. So architects and other creative professionals, um, what, what do we sell? Are we selling our time? Are we selling creative genius? Um, we're selling some other form of value. What do you guys think? Uh, I think we're selling time is that we're selling time, but I think our clients aren't aware of that. I think they think that they're buying something else, but we're selling something different. And there's some confusion about that. There's a, there's a disconnect there between what it is we think we're selling and what the client thinks they're buying. So wait a second, you think that we're selling time but our clients think they're buying a product? Yeah, that's right. And so See, I, I, mean, don't, I don't feel that way. I, I never charge hourly rates at all because I don't feel as though we're, uh, we're selling our time at, at all. I think we, we spend a lot of time thinking about what the value is to the client and then we uh, uh, make sure our fees reflect that. Um, and I think a lot of the time people are looking for the, a certain skill set that, um, you know, concept design is a classic one. You know, you can have a good idea in 15 minutes. Does that make it worth one quarter of one hour's work? Wait a second. Yeah. So can I ask two questions around that then? Um, I mean, that analogy is great. There's a quote, um, you know, that says something along the lines of, this thing is going to cost you $10,000. It took me an hour, which is 100 bucks, but the other $9,900 comes from the 15 years of experience that yeah. Took to get me to this point where I can do it in an hour. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so when you say you don't charge hourly rates, um, 
do, do you ever like what happens if the oh, that's, a, that's a shocking lie. I've got two two projects on at the moment that really are charging hourly rates, but they're they're both very weird projects. <laughs> But let's say on a, on a regular project where you've established the value of the services that you're offering from, mm -hmm. you know, a fixed or a percentage model or something. Yeah. And what happens if the clients ask you to do something extra? Uh, well, we don't usually charge for it. So um, I think um, what we're doing in, in our fee structure at the start of the project is sort of saying, well, we're, um, we sort of uh, peg our fees similar to um, a lot of Melbourne practices. And um, despite the fact that we're located in uh, Ballarat in regional Victoria, um, and uh, we are saying, you know, we're offering this sort of high-level architectural service. Uh, we're located closer to you in, in the regions, um, but the being a sort of um, quite a good percentage fee, it means that we've got room within that to absorb pretty much anything that gets thrown at us in terms of additional um, services. So. If there's um, some extra work that needs to be done for a planning application or something like that, we typically just do it um, under the umbrella that, that that is covered by that fee. That tends to work for us. It's interesting. I am. Um, we've been going the other direction where we've been pushing more and more to define where the scope that we've covered in our fixed or percentage fee, which would cover the majority of the work that we do, um, ends and where additional work begins. Um, and so as a proportion, for instance, as a, of our income um, over the last 10 years, the amount of that income that is being generated by hourly rates has gone up by like 50%. Yeah, it's amazing. Like it's still a minority, but it's like a third now of our income comes from that outlook. Um, and we're kind of feel proud about that, actually, that we've been able to stand up for ourselves. Yeah, Didn't that's right. One step there, Warwick. We, we lost to, um, to the Zoom. Um, I feel good that um, we've been able to recognise where the out-of-scope stuff can be charged. And generally speaking, our clients are really relaxed about it. We've got a whole management process where we, we never do it in arrears. We never say, oh, by the way, that thing we did for you last week, yeah. here's a $1,000 yeah. invoice. It's yeah. more that we have to do this. Are you happy for us to do it on hourly rates? And almost always people say, yeah, no problems. So the thing about this is that you, um, you know, if you're using Streamtime or, or any other sort of um, project management software, even just timesheets, you're tracking your hours, right? But so, Mick, you're not, when you're going to a concept design meeting, you're not going to go in there and be like, here's my 15 hours worth of work without a product to you know, at the same time. So we really aren't, we're tracking time as part of our business and making sure that we're not um, going over the time, you know, that we're not overdoing it or that we're not not making a profit. Yeah. But at the same time, there's a disconnect between how long it takes to produce that product that the client sees and what we're tracking uh, in our, as our mainframe of our business, as our business model. Hmm. So you what happens if you hit your... Um, you hit your 15 hours, do you keep on working until you get it right or do you just say, right, that's it? We've kind of seen, sorry, was that question for you, Kate? Sorry, you go. No, no, I think it was for you. I, I just, I, I was thinking about that previously and um, we've kind of looked at our business in the first 10 years, kind of it's in this startup phase. And to us, it's been about building the best product um, that we could. So if we sort of said, okay, well, we're going to put six weeks or six months design for, for this part of the design. If we haven't finished it to our own satisfaction to create the sort of product slash business that we want to create, 
then the extra time that I put into that to get it to the level I'm happy with is kind of like an investment into the into the the image of the of the company essentially. Mm. Um, but I don't feel like that anymore. I feel like that was a uh, something that we had to do in the startup phase. But now that we've got some runs on the board, we've got a good folio of our work. People can sort of see that we know what we're doing. Um, I kind of expect every job to be profitable. Yep. What about you, Kate? Um, we, yeah, we we work until we get it right. Yeah. Always. Um, I think the other the other uncontrollable aspect of this is, you know, you might get it right, but your clients might disagree with you. And so that's a really, I mean, so again, it's sort of we're talking about the things that affect our fees. And so we may charge the same fee to two clients and do the same amount of work and have the same product, but those two clients will have very different uh, perspectives on that. And so at the same time as we produce a product, we are also a service. And so there is that personal element of whether or not our clients are happy. Uh, and so I feel like architecture in in quite a few ways when we talk about fees is understanding that there are these different parameters um, to when the to when the finish is, where the finish yeah. lines. And it's that architect it's an artistic process where we're creating something and saying, you know, here is a, a unique piece of art that you can live in or that you can work in. Yeah. And if we put something out there that is not um, to the client's liking, um, and this ties in with that sort of one of the other questions that's really closely linked into this is how to write the perfect fee proposal, mm. is that you, there needs to be some sort of limit there on the whole process of, of how many uh, revisions of this design that you can come up with that's still feasible to produce within your fee. But you know, mm. we, we've gone through projects in the past where we've done, you know, 10 or 15 concept designs for people and um, it's, uh, it's, it's completely um, not profitable. But... Uh, unless you've got that sort of in your concept, like in your fee proposal, that you're limiting the amount of redesign work that you'll do. Um, theoretically, you know, you could be on the hook forever. Yeah, I mean, we definitely have those controls in place in our agreements. Um, and, you know, so for instance, a, a clause for our sketch design phase is we will pre present one sketch design plus minor revisions, additional, or sorry, plus one round of minor revisions and additional minor revisions or major revisions are excluded or are, are, are examples of additional work. Um, now, invariably, you know, part of this is also about, you know, expectations management and client management and, and making sure that um, uh, your clients are happy. And so if we feel like we're pretty close after that one round of minor revisions, we're not going to, like, be a dick about it and say we want an extra hundred fifty dollars, please, to finish the last thing off. Yeah. Um, but if we get up to like revision D or E or F, mm. and we're still feeling like the clients just want to keep on going and going and going, we'll say, look, we're going to do this round, last round of changes, and that's it. And then we're happy. We're so happy to keep on changing this for you. But our fee only stretches so far. And so if you want us to keep working on this, you know, we'll do it at, for a cost. I think that's really important too to kind of um, give your clients a little bit of um, a peek into your business and say, look, you know, this is how the sausage is made. We don't just work forever for, on, on projects um, through the love of it. We've got this many hours uh, associated with this part of the job um, and we're coming up to the ceiling of that um, and invite them into how you should, you know, move forward as a profitable company. So the interesting thing about this is that 
we've acknowledged that we are a creative profession and that there are um, there is a bit of weirdness to what we do. But at the same time, the thing that uh, helps manage that weirdness is actually uh, the structure and explaining, no, there is a structure and it is very clear. And if as long as you're prepared with that structure and you're upfront about it in your fee proposal um, and you go through those things with your client to explain um, what that structure looks like, actually you can make the architectural profession um, or you can make your services not as vague and reduce that. Mm. But one of the benefits. Do you ever wonder, Kate, how close our industry is? Level. I think everybody thinks that their industry is unique and no one could possibly understand it. But, you know, when you talk to other business That's people, right. like business coaches or something like that, they're always like, no, you think you're special, but no, really, this you're is. You're not special. You're not special. Yeah. I wonder how. I've never worked with a coach or, um, or I really, you know, I, I've never been a professional in another field. So I actually don't know. Ray from Archibiz uh, says it's one. It's it is almost the number one thing about the architectural profession, architectural businesses that is um, wrong at the moment, or is one of the most common things that he encounters is the fact that the architectural profession like to think of itself as totally different. They're special. Um, yeah, oh, we have all these you know reasons why ours <laughs> is so much harder than another business, and I think it's actually just a reluctance to sit down and and create parameters and track things. Yeah. Because we don't like working that way. Um, but you have to work that way with money, always. Mm. Very, I think we're identical to um, like web developers or software developers. Mm. They're going, it's no, I think it's no coincidence that those guys often call themselves, you know, enterprise architects or yeah. IT architects or whatever. Yeah. They're essentially doing exactly what we do, except instead of, you know, we have sort of design, documentation, construction, let's say. They've got, you know, um, wireframe design, maybe sort of more fleshed out design and then coding and development. Mm. Yeah. Just documentation, yeah. Which is, well, which is sort of documentation but also the construction phase. But they have oh, okay. essentially like mm. the same kind of thing. And they have the clients coming in and saying, oh, look, I don't like the images all this size. I want them all to be landscape and, you know, I want to be able to click on this link and go somewhere else, which you might totally disagree with and have to change the entire structure mm. to deal with that. Yeah. Unknown. Um, can I go back to the original question about, um, you know, how much should I charge? Because I, I think that for all of us, you know, we've all been in practice for, you know, a decade, give or take a bit. And um, I know that our systems that we have in place um, in our studio are not systems. Almost none of the systems that we have now are things we had at the beginning. Yeah. That's it's right. all stuff we've developed along the way. Yeah. Um, and... I reckon a really good way to, for us to maybe dive into the question about how much should I charge is something I've realised probably only over the last couple of years that despite all this talk of hours and value and how, how long it takes to do stuff and how much that thing is worth once we've done it to our clients, my, I think I've come to realise that um, how much it costs to produce the work we do Mm. how much we can charge for that work are actually totally disconnected from each other. Yeah. What do you another thing, that is another thing that Ray um, from Archibiz refers to is the fact that your selling price and your margin are totally disconnected. So what it costs, I mean, the first thing you do when you don't have a system in place is look at the information in front of you. 
How much time am I taking? How much am I paying my staff? How much does my office cost? What are my overheads? All right, well, if it's costing me this much to run and I know I'm going to spend this much time, then therefore uh, I guess I'm going to charge X. They're totally not related. Yeah. I mean, what if you're, you know, you're the most in-demand architect in the country, you're going to be charging... 10 and, times more and that than might the average be, student. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's why um, when, when I've discussed this before, I think um, it comes back to a lot of supply and demand, simple rules of economics. That yep. you, If you're um, in a position where you have the experience, you've got runs on the board, you've got um, some great projects that people want your service, um, your your, your fees are going to increase. You know, you, you, even if it, your overheads and the, the time it takes to complete those projects all, all remain static, there's um, uh, an argument there that you can charge a larger fee and therefore that's um, that's perfectly reasonable. That's that's what we're in business for. I also think there's it's 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 kind of like buying a house too. You know, when you, you if you've ever done it before, but you you go in and you're like, oh. You know, they've got asking price, they've got a range, let's say it's 800 to a million. If I offer 800, am I going to miss out? Um, you know, I, I've, maybe I've got 900, but I don't really want to pay 900 if I, I could have got it for eight. And yeah. so there's all this guesswork going on with, with your fees. It's the same thing. Like, oh, I don't want to lose this job, but this is how much I can do that project for. So I think even at a baseline, knowing what your base level is, when do you start losing money? Uh, add a bit of fat into that for the risk. And then go to town on the other bit and be prepared to lose that. Uh, I think that for a really... Can't. It's something you eat session, um, Warwick. Say again, sorry. It's something you said in the BQE session about, you know, just charge an extra percent, see how you go. Um, you soon quickly work out that they're not connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a bit of like trial and error approach really is that yeah. I don't, um, we do a lot of fee proposals over the course of a year um, and they're not all the same figure. You know, sometimes we'll be like, oh, well, we're absolutely swamped. We can't possibly do this project without putting on a new person. So we're probably going to need to um, charge our, you know, premium rate there. And, and I think that that's um, probably might come as a surprise to some people who say, oh, no, architecture fees are 10%, you know, regardless of the project or the, or the um, or, or the firm, um, but there's you know for, for maybe some of the listeners who don't um, don't know the ins and outs of, of architectural fees, you know they can range from anywhere from you know six or seven percent for uh, a residential build um, right through to, to 17, 18, 19 percent, um, and uh, there's a, there's a huge you know, it might not sound like much in in the scheme of the project, but that's a that's a huge amount for the architect. Yeah. Also, I mean, it, there's clients that I've worked for. Uh, in the past that if they asked me to do a project again, I would triple their fee. <laughs> and if they said no, I'd be like, okay. okay. <laughs> well, that's the um, not to be uh, um, churlish about it, but we call that the arsehole factor, right? Yeah, it's the arsehole factor. And yeah. I mean, we, we have a process with our clients that we're really transparent about the way we charge our fees, which we've had repeated feedback from um, both potential clients who become paying clients and those who've gone in other directions, that one of the things they've always really liked about our approach is that transparency. Mm. But one of the downsides of it is, is, is that we can't then manipulate the fee to suit either the external or internal conditions that might make us want a job more or not want it as much or... Um, yeah, so you have to kind of choose a figure then that's the baseline that makes every project profitable because once that information's out there, 
Do you guys have your fees on your website? No, not on our website, but um, in our very first meeting, we sort of will give an indication of how it all works um, and then go back later with us on the second meeting and you know prepare a full fee proposal based on the actual budget and actual scope of works. Yeah. yeah. You know, if we've said that, you know, it was, from there, though. no, that's right. If, it's, if it says 12% in the, um, you know, in that initial kind of in, uh, indication and you end up charging 14%, they're going to be like, what? Are we the assholes? <laughs> yeah. Is the asshole tax a claim? She's like, no, it's the asshole tax now. That'll teach you to be. What do you guys do on that? I give them a throwaway range because often we're trying mm-hmm. to tell people, we're trying to let people down gently quite a lot, especially with all this stimulus around, you know, everyone yeah. with, 20, you know, 25 grand's calling us up. Um, and we just say, look, you know, your architectural fees will set you back somewhere in between 10 and 15%. And then that sort of covers us mostly for the kind of range we want to charge. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what we do too, Kate. And, yeah. Um, and also the same numbers um, because that's got where we sit as well. Um, and uh, we send out a client guide, which I think everybody's got their little welcome packs. Client guide, guide, yeah. And yeah. that we do a little work example um, saying, you know, here's um, client budgets of construction budget of $800,000 plus the GST. Architectural fees are charged on the XGST amount so that people, you know, because I think one of the first things is they, is they see is that, oh, if I'm paying uh, your 12% plus GST, is that on uh, yeah. the production price that already yeah. includes GST? I'm not paying my GST and GST. I get that question quite a lot. Um, so a little work example in there is really valuable to people. And then we put we even put in um, uh, things like the, the structural engineer's costs, the quantities of those, the land surveyors um, and just sort of put in their little brackets that, you know, in the order of $5,000 or in the order of $2,000. And um, I think it's really powerful to um, uh, give people that idea of that total project cost, which is a term that comes up a lot in the um, client architect agreements is that um, it's not just the build cost and the architectural cost that the clients got in the forefront of their mind. It's the it's everything right down to the removalist and uh, finance costs and all those sort of things. And what, that's something that we, I think, struggle with sometimes in some projects is trying to get a client across, not just across the line by saying, okay, well, here's the construction cost and here's our fee. Mm. But you need to consider that within this, this other sort of spreadsheet of costs that you're responsible for managing. So what do you guys do? Do you charge um, with those kind of, once you've got those fees, you go fixed percentage? What do you do? Yeah, we're at a fixed percentage. We used to um, run with the old uh, the fee graph with the um, the, the big <laughs> the big curve in it, but um, we just found it was um, a, a quite a um, and a level of complication that was I think making the whole thing a bit too hard from the start. So if we sent out a client guide at the start and it had this um, complicated way, you know, most other businesses don't use a graph to tell you how much they cost, mm. uh, and so it. it I think in a um, in a market like ours, which is um, less sophisticated than Sydney or Melbourne, it's um uh, it's it's a way of kind of saying, well, look, you know, here's our service. It's all written in plain language, and here's our fee. It's a fixed number, um, and uh, whilst it probably represents less of a good deal for the client, you know, if they double their budget from one to two million dollars, you know, it might be reasonable for that to step down a percent or so. But um, we've just found that it it wasn't. Um, it, it, it didn't seem to be um, a positive for our 
our um, proposals. What did you find, Kate? Do you do it? Um, we actually charge a fixed fee, but I have it's only because of inexperience and I, and I've, a lot of these conversations I've had with um, the both of you and other people are helping me understand how you can make that percentage work. So, I mean, in one of my first fee negotiations, the uh, client's husband was, uh, you know, um, one of Perth's best accountants. You know, he just said straight away, like, I don't want you to benefit from my misfortune. And so, therefore, the idea of charging on a fee, yeah, because he didn't want the house at all and he was just paying for his wife's thing. Um, and that so, is such a horrible attitude. Like, it is a horrible attitude to face. But the answer, it was good for me because, and there was many other horrible lessons in this negotiation. I didn't have an answer for that. I have a pre-prepared answer for that only because I've been at the receiving end of that one a couple of times yeah. as well. And yeah. um, I just say that, no, look, if, if you can give me a 100% fixed scope of works in that your house will definitely cost this amount of money, then I'll give you a 100% fixed fee. But yeah. by changing the project from a $1 million to a $2 million project, you're massively increasing the scope of works. So therefore our fee needs to be adjusted. And that's why percentage fees are the industry standard. And that's why the successful projects are delivered using that methodology because it, it allows the scope of works to reflect, sorry, the fee to reflect, reflect the actual scope of works. But that's taken me so long to actually have that as that automatic response. Because the first yeah. time you hear it, you're like, what? Yeah. How unfair on our poor clients. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also think one thing that we've chatted about another time in relation to that, Mick, is, um, and you too, Warwick, how you structure that in your invoices. So you've already made them aware of it by taking them through your fee proposal rather than just, you know, sort of landing on them at some point when the the QS report comes back in and saying, oh, you owe me another 30 grand. Um, <laughs> sort of already, like that's, you know, how do you how do you sort of develop that process so that you don't end up in that position where you've just charged someone extra and they can't see the work for it? Um, You've taken that totally out of the equation, that relationship. But, and, you know, do you want to elaborate on that? Um, yeah, I've got a, a way that I deal with that. Warwick, did you want to talk about your methods? or? Yeah, yeah sure. But you go first. Yeah, I mean, what I do just in our client guide is to kind of explain that we don't know how much the building's going to cost when we start designing it. We move towards a budget. Um, if we hit that budget target with the design that you like, that's great. But it's you know it's a it's a one in a million shot of shot. So we set the budget in with the client's knowledge at the start. We try to work towards that budget. We test it with the QS. Um, if we if we don't achieve that budget, we always say, look, we're going to do these changes X, Y, and Z to bring it back to that budget. And that means that the client's very much in control of that process. Mm -hmm. um, and we we really sort of bring them into that. Um, and then we explain that. What we're doing but through the process of design is that we're creating this prototype. It's one-off building. It's never been done before. And we're trying to tell you that the cost of it um, is, you know, more or less going to be 12%, 14%, whatever it's going to be. Um, the By going into the project at $800,000 and ending up at 1.6, which is the true scope of works at 1.6, yep. we've actually underestimated our fee all the way along until it's revealed what the true scope of works is and what the true project value is. So we've actually got it written in our, uh, in our yeah. guide that we're just doing the best we can. We're just giving you a running 
estimate of the fees. And if it turns out that that estimate is undercooked, well, then we need to catch up. So at the end of the day, we've got a scope of works and a fee that are, you know, roughly aligned. Um, and one of the ways we do that is to really keep our clients in the driver's seat when it comes to the budget and the agreed quantity surveyors um, plans so that we get a, a cost plan done at the end of the major design stages, so concept design and design development, and then we get another one done pre-tender so that the client can sit there and say, okay, well, I started off at $800,000. I added in that lap pool, now I'm at 920. Mm-hmm. And, or, oh, I'll take that out. I'll do that another time. And they really sort of, I think, give them a lot more, uh, gives a client agency in that control. Um, and then we, we just haven't had anybody query the, the, the budget, sorry, the, the fees against their budget that they've agreed to mm-hmm. or, the, or the cost forecast that they've already agreed to. Um, mostly because we don't actually have that conversation. It's automatically updated in their invoices. Um, and, 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 you know, the hotline just says, here is the um, current forecast cost of works prepared by the quantity surveyor on this date. And that figure is then in a you know, very high-tech Excel spreadsheet that we, uh, we use to do our invoicing. Uh, it, that cell is linked to the percentage for that stage. And then it all just totals out at the bottom. Mm-hmm. How do you go, Joe? Right. Um, look, pretty similar, actually. And one of the things that we find is, is that our clients are not good at um, establishing a starting budget. And I don't, I don't see it as a criticism. I, I mean, no one is. I mean, how do we know how much anything should cost until someone else tells us? And, you know, you, you mentioned that what we're doing is pr- producing a prototype every single time, which therefore, by definition, makes it um, what something should cost. Yeah. So we find in a lot of our projects that there are shifts in our budget. Um, you know, not always up, but you know, I guess in the industry that is probably the most common thing to happen. And well, so that's, the that's an important point, though, isn't it? It's a two-edged yeah. sword. You know, if you're if you come in and think, okay, well, I'm doing this project, it's going to cost a million dollars, and we've got some clients at the moment who are who are potentially, you know, put a couple hundred grand under their budget for what they actually want. And it just means our fee is less because the scope of work is less. I have never had that situation. We've <laughs> <laughs> had situations. I've got a lot of very hopeful clients, and I understand that. You know, <laughs> um, we have had situations where both have happened, and um, and that's actually what makes me wary of the fixed fee. Mm. And part of that is because. There's an information asymmetry in the client-architect relationship. In fact, in any relationship any individual has with a professional where we know things that our clients don't know and our clients know things that we don't know. For example, we know what construction actually costs um, and have, you know, regularly develop gut feels about, oh, this is actually a half million or a million or a $2 million thing irrespective of what you say you want it to cost, that's kind of, I, I bet that's where it's going to end up. And then our clients know actually what they can afford, not mm. what they hold you, but what they can actually afford. And the clients know what they want as well. Mm. And so one of the downsides, in a perfect world, there would be complete transparency along all of those layers. But without that transparency, you need to find, um, or sorry, without the possibility of that like, instant immediate transparency, as you develop trust through the relationship, those layers get peeled back and 
you get to the end of the project and you go, all right, well, this is, it started off at 500, it's now 800 or whatever the numbers are. Mm -hmm. um, and we're actually all still happy with it. And, you know, you jumped onto something really critical, I think, that if the client feels like they're not in the driver's seat, um, I think there's, there's a term for that, isn't it? It's being taken for a ride. <laughs> um, so spot on analogy. Yeah. If they are in the driver's seat, if they've made the decisions along the yeah. way, you know, being presented with a couple of options and said, well, here's the thing that you can afford and here's the thing that we think you want. Mm. But by the way, that thing is like 20% more expensive and they make the call to go in that direction. Mm. Well, then Absolutely. they're happy. And then they're happy to pay for the fees that are associated with that because they've made, they pushed the project in a particular direction and all the things that are accommodate around that, be it mm. construction and costs or consultant fees. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I think that, uh, and we talk to clients a lot so, about that we're on the same side and that it's where we're your agent, we're your professional um, spirit guide in this process. And we want to uh, get you the best result that we can within the resources that are available, your budget, um, and trying to work but, and that's why we use a quantity survey a lot of the time. It's that we set them up as our straw man, our, our bad guy, and uh, and say, look, you know, we've, we the QS has said that we, you know, we can't do the concrete uh, wall cladding. You know, it's going to be six hundred dollars a square meter. So uh, we're going to have to get around that some way and and put ourselves in. And and clients love this idea that you would be treating their building like it's your own house in your own budget. Do you think the percentage fee model undermines that position of being the spirit guard? That's the question. Mm. I mean, that's valid. It depends on how you look at it. But I think the rhetoric's important too and, and that relationship that you develop with the with the client. And um, I'll say things like, you know, I, I don't want to sound like a tight ass. I don't want to put a handbrake on your dreams. All these sort of little sayings I have along the way when I'm talking to clients because I actually don't feel comfortable people just spending money for the sake of it, you know, and, and and making a house or, or, or an office or whatever it is just ridiculously big because that's one of the options that you can do. I'd much rather um, the client walk away at the end of the job having spent a reasonable amount of money uh, and, and got that what they want. Um, and, and so I try to almost go too far beyond, you know, in this relationship with the client. I, I want to be the one who's seen as constantly saying, oh, I don't know, it sounds a bit expensive. Um, which is a weird situation because you've also got to, at the same time, push um, design ideas onto them and say, you know, this is a beautiful thing. We should do this. We should invest your money into into this finish because that's the, you know, it's going to be the, the, the most lovely part of the project. I think that's an interesting thing. You've just sort of rested on like an aesthetic or a, you know, creative or beautiful value, but also there's things like, all right, well, maybe we're going to try and get it to be, damn close to passive house standards so it costs you less in the long run yeah. uh, and so you, there, there is no um, financial parameter in the discussion that is that simple I think and I mean we were also talking about the fact that you know we might take on a job that's say half a million dollars because we think the project is awesome the client is awesome we're going to have a wow of a time and we're going to you know it's going to be a really simple easy process yeah, and um, we might take on a job that's five million mm. uh, and want to quit. Yeah, so they're yeah. not, you know, yes, okay, we're going to get a lot more fees out of the five million dollar job, but is that really? It's not about the fee in the end; it's about the profit margin of that project. Yeah, maybe and the enjoyment of the job. That's yeah, every time. 
maybe there's um, there's actually that's a healthy tension to maintain. That if the hard line, the percentage fee is, if you increase your scope or budget, I will charge you more money. Um, that's the, you go back one sec. Sorry, Warwick, we lost you. Um, maybe there's value in the tension of that. That the hard line is is that if you increase your scope or budget, I will charge you more money. Mm. But there's all these soft um, management techniques like the things you were talking about, Mick, with, um, you know, trying to be, be the like, playing bad cop a bit with the, um, the dolls and saying, like, this is exciting, but just hold on a second, you sure you want to spend this extra money? Mm. Because if the, your clients hear that over and over and over again, they'll know that actually in your heart of hearts, you're looking after their money, even though that you are also simultaneously profiting from them spending more. Um, there's mm. a, yeah, you know, and which is one of the reasons why I like the, the percentage thing and like getting it way out of the way at the start, like by saying, you know, here's your fee, it's going to be you know, 14%, 12 12%. That's a one conversation we have to have once. Um, and and why I don't like the idea of the fee graph is that, you, you know, if you can get that conversation out of the way and it's just something that's handled by your accounting staff and, and you know, you don't have to really let that sort of influence the, the dirty sort of fees uh, part of it to influence the creative process. Um, I think it opens up that that relationship between the um, the architect and the client, and you're no longer sort of you know saying, oh well, if you make this decision, your fees will go up by two hundred thousand dollars, and therefore your percentage fee will go down to thirteen point seven percent. You know, it all seems a bit too. In, in for my taste, a bit too businessy. You know, you it never go to your doctor and discuss the fees, really. You know, you go to the front desk at the end and you get the bill. Um, mm. You know, I've, I've never sat down and talked to my my trusted GP or something and said, okay, well, you know, what are we talking here? 80 bucks for this consultation or is it a 130? Uh, <laughs> I, I actually quite like that kind of, I totally agree with you on the doctor's analogy, but for some reason, I actually quite like the track, the, it's not so much even necessarily about transparency, but the the, qu the question of fees being front and centre. Mm. Um, one of the reasons I think we're able to charge additional fees for out-of-scope work now as a studio is that we don't just have that single conversation at the beginning. I remember actually mm. like recognising that one of the downsides of that approach is you have that conversation, you've set, your, you know, you've set it at 12%, and then they add that, you know, a $200,000 or $400,000 little granny fight out the back. And it's a, big, it's a big enough scope change that you know it's going to require you to do more work and that maybe there's a whole second town planning application and there's all this extra stuff associated with it. Yeah. Um, maybe that's okay to have a conversation about, like to say, um, look, you know, that's big enough for us to warrant a re-conversation about the fee. But anything short of that, like what happens if it's just, oh, by the way, you have to do this extra little thing to Heritage Victoria because council has now asked for it. And it's not 100 hours of work, but it is 20 hours of work. Or it's, and like asking for an extra 20 hours worth of fees when you've had one conversation about fees a year ago, mm. but that is going to cover a thousand hours of work. Like it feels pretty. Yeah. It's a blunt instrument, the old uh, percentage. Yeah, super, that's a great, yeah, it's a super blunt instrument. And so by having, like, I, don't think, I don't think the method is necessarily critical here, but being sort of prepared to have constant conversations about dollars mm. um, is... Well, it keeps it, it keeps it in the forefront of your mind and, you know, you're kind of almost in practice with the client talking about fees and, um, and the impact of their decisions and, and those fees. Um, 
I think, yeah, perhaps I'm, you know, you learn something every day. I think that's something that we could work on because we tend to treat it like it's this sort of, you know, hold your nose at the start of the project, yeah. get it out of the way, and then we don't have to, to mention the subject of fees ever again. But, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, I, you know it, when I'm in a position where I'm paying somebody, you know, this is a lot of money you know, that, that a client pays an architect. If I was in that position and I had that consultant working for me, um, then yeah, you know, I'd, I'd be certainly very happy to to talk about those fees, um, and I'd want them to be almost proactively bringing that up and, and saying, well, yeah, we've got this allowed for in this, but you know, the things that you're asking for now have to be extra. Thanks everyone so much for joining us on our first ever show at In Detail. Warwick, where can they find us? You can find us everywhere. Our website is www.indetail.show where we will maintain a suppository. Um, <laughs> I didn't think you were going to do it. <laughs> that, well, that joke was much funnier <laughs> in the first day. <laughs> no, leave it in there. Don't cut that out. Still just as good. Um, what other do we have? What? What other suppositories? Where are the, our other suppositories? Work. Other suppositories are um, at on Spotify or your favourite podcasting service. We are on YouTube. If you want to see um, Mix and Kate's beautiful faces, um, and we also have a Twitter handle. If you'd like to get in touch with us for that personal touch, which is and our handle is in detail show. Awesome. I think that's everything. So stay tuned, I guess, for our next episode. Um, Mick, do you want to give a little um, a little teaser of what that one's going to be about? Yeah, sure. I think we're uh, we're all going to be talking about what it what's involved in writing the, the perfect fee proposal, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I think it's a good, great extension to what we talked about today. Um, extending that into, I guess, some more uh, practical tools about how to actually put that together. Sure. There's nothing that helps you out in your practice more than, you know, the advice you get from other architects about how to how they've dealt with certain things in their fee proposals. So now we're going to take you behind the scenes of the perfect fee proposal. Yep. I look forward to one of part part one of 50 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> one giant thousand-year series on fee proposals. <laughs> Great. See you then. See you then. Gotcha. Yeah,